folks welcome back to another episode of triple g ginger's gridiron and golf podcast i'm your host stephen kerr aka the ginger and we're back with another jam-packed episode we've got two guests this week i know over the last month leading into the nfl season you heard a lot of my voice tonight folks or when you listen to this pod you will not hear a lot of my voice today we've got two big guests on we're gonna start it off Right off the top with PGA Tour caddy, veteran stalwart out on the caddy scene on the PGA Tour caddy for the likes of VJ Singh, Jerry Kelly, and now for the last decade and a bit, Webb Simpson. We've got uh, Paul Tesori joining us for a great, uh, great little chat. And after we get back from break, we're going to do our NFL picks. We're going to talk about what we learned, and we're also going to be joined by a little uh, Vegas insider and um, in on the lines, and that is Donnie Wrightside Seymour is going to join us talking about Week 2 NFL football, what we can and can't learn from uh, Week 1 in terms of uh, putting a few shekel down, shekels down and making some bets. So without further ado, let's get right into it, because I, listeners, I want you guys uh, and girls to hear this. This is some great PGA Tour insight we're going to get here from Paul. Let's flip it over to our chat with PGA Tour caddy, Paul Tesori. All right, Triple G listeners, super excited to welcome to the show. Long time coming. We've been working around his his busy tour schedule. Um, Tour caddy, Stallworth, and current caddy of uh, Webb Simpson, Paul Tesori. Paul, are you on the line with us? I definitely am, and I love that introduction. Can we start over and just do it again? <laughs> I love it. Well, it's, uh, it's great to have you aboard. I know uh, I know you're busy out there, but uh, what are you up to now? I know that the official tour season has ended, but I know your work uh, hasn't stopped. What are you up to now? Yeah, so, you know, it's crazy how this works. Uh, I called my mom and dad yesterday and just said, hey, guys, I need to get together and have lunch. I leave tomorrow, and they both didn't understand where I was going. I said, yeah. I'm going to Napa. And they said, why are you going to Napa? I said, guys, the season starts uh, this week. And uh, it, it's incredible in golf now how quickly you just turn right back around and, and get on the horse. We were obviously quite disappointed to not get a Ryder Cup. Uh, thought that uh, We thought we were going to gain uh, one of those last two spots, but we didn't. Um, and uh, the good news is you get to turn right back around, come out to Napa, get the year started off strong, and uh, – you know, try to get a little momentum. Yeah, for sure. And I know me and you had talked off air and, and, you know, you were really hoping to, to get that nod. Any inclination as to to why that didn't uh, come from Captain Stricker? Was it, was it just more on the course setup and he maybe felt that it didn't suit Webby's game as much as, as others, or uh, you just wanted to give some, some new guys a shot? More of the second part, um, the course is going to play pretty hard and fast, which negates Webb's distance problem um, that he would have on a golf course like that. Now, if the course was wet, 
yeah, it can be a, a little too much for Webb to handle, but Webb's driving it incredibly straight right now. Um, obviously finished the year off with four out of five really good solid tournaments and was in a good place. Strick said that uh, he, he wants to give some of these younger guys a chance that there's a strange stat that I wasn't aware of, but I guess that rookies have fared really well on the American side as far as their, their numbers go, their record goes. So Strick wanted to get somebody that obviously did have length um, at the same time, somebody young as well. Um, being Scotty Shuffler was kind of that last spot. Um, we knew kind of there was 10 and a half picks that were gone. Berger was already a big half foot uh, in the door. Um, and I think he helped himself out with a really nice last round at East Lake. I think he shot five under um, yeah. to kind of, you, you know, I think that solidified it. I still think there was probably a 10% chance that uh, that spot was open. But uh, Berger being a winner, uh, a fearless competitor, uh, you know, that was obviously a good pick. And then, Chef, you can't go wrong with whoever you put in our 12th spot. Um, I, I thought Webb had, had earned that. We had a rough year as far as health goes. But when he did play, he, he played better and better as the year progressed we look at it is we didn't make it to east lake and if you don't make it to east lake i don't really think you have to be on our full leg to stand not understanding and we were the only one that was in a mix that wasn't at east lake okay just one of those you know strange years one of the years where uh just kind of injury and and uh and his wife pretty good uh they had those long lasting effects about seven months worth and so um, he's healthy now, and we're excited to be out here in Napa and get the new year started. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't planning on starting the, starting the conversation that way, and, and that's that's totally fine. And But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dial it back here to your, okay. your early life here on tour and, and bring you back to, you know, 09, 010, 11, and 12 here. You, you know, you come out as a university uh, grad from Florida, and, and you're kind of focused on your, your own game a little bit. How do you yeah. find yourself um, as a caddy on tour in those early years? And, and how did that whole thing, how did that come about? Where did that start? Yeah, so I, um, I was a college player, not a great college player. I was a, I was a three-time All-American. Um, we won a national championship as a, as a team at the University of Florida in 1993. Uh, 94 came around, had a good year. We finished third. Um, but, you know, Coach Alexander always said, he goes, like you're one of those guys. If I was in a foxhole, I'd want you in there with me. And I always that didn't hurt. Nails, and I was, and I got about all I could out of my game. But I was maximizing my potential. And uh, I was on a team with Brian Gay, who's obviously been out here for 20 plus years. Chris Couch, who won out here on the PGA Tour, and yep. we actually had seven guys play either on the Corn Ferry or Tour from uh, those teams. So, you know, it was competitive every day. And uh, I got my tour card straight through. In 96 and 97 was my rookie year, and I really struggled. I had torn my labrum and rotator cuff in my shoulder, and I was too young and too stupid, too naive to understand that I could have stopped playing and gotten a medical exemption, and I didn't know that. And so I had this incredible pain that I tried to play through. Um, you could, and uh, it actually ended up leading to uh, basically the, the driver yips, which is when I would get to the top of my swing, my left shoulder would pop and I would kind of just. So obviously you try to play on this PGA tour with all, um, you know, you're kind of ducks in a row. It's hard enough and much less with me physically, mentally hurting. So my tour career playing ended up in 99. I played my last event in San Antonio in 99. I started teaching full time. 
Um, and I thought that was the avenue I was going to go. And uh, August of 2000, VJ Singh called, and uh, me and VJ had become friends. Uh, I practiced a lot. I worked a lot. And uh, him and I used to kind of gamble a, a bunch on the back of the range at TPC, a lot of short game competitions, a lot of, um, <laughs> you know, accuracy competitions, distance control, um, and, and work hard. And he always liked the young guys. So uh, he called and asked if I wanted to try to caddy for a week. And I'm like, sure. And, and that week we made a couple of changes in his. He liked me, hired me at the end of that week. Uh, and that's what started was 2000. Um, a little bit of a fast forward. I, I know I can tell these stories way too long at times, but um, me and Veach split up uh, in 2003, uh, kind of halfway through the year. Doing well. We were playing well. We um, we were just starting not to like each other very much. And so we decided to save our friendship that we would, uh, that we would split it. And I didn't know what I was going to do next. Um, I applied, uh, at a, a local, uh, country club, uh, you know, to go back through the program again. Um, there was a, that had already established a good teaching base. I was going to teach under him. I even, uh, sent out my applications to a local bank, um, just to kind of go that direction. Gary Kelly called me, um, and him and I ended up. Uh, having a lot of success together. We did the President's Cup team together over in South Africa. Uh, you know, got the top 30 in the world. And um, that kind of supplanted my caddy on the PGA Tour with uh, the amount of respect that I got from that. And the reputation kind of increased. And obviously, uh, we make a good quickly that uh, became uh, who I was. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. That's a, gr- a great story. How how fun are those team events when you go over to those types of events? You know, you've you've done a bunch of Ryder Cups with Webby, you know, 12 and 14 and 18, and, and you mentioned the President's Cup with Jerry. How fun are those um, events to catch? Yeah. So I've done, let's see, I've done eight President's Cups. Um, I've done three on the other side and five on, no, I've done nine President's Cups. So three on the other side on the uh, international and then uh, six on the U.S. side. And, you know, for me, um, the first few being on the international side, it was like a mixed bag of emotions. Um, I wanted my guy to win. And then you develop relationships um, with guys on that team. And, and so you just ended up kind of feeling torn. Like you don't really care who wins. You just care, you know, that you do your best and you try to get your guy to win his match. And, and that's all you can do. But on the U.S. side was in South Africa 2003. And that was an incredible experience and kind of the team unity. Uh, and then um, Sean O'Hare, I was on Sean's bag when we did the 2009 President's Cup out in San Francisco. And that was as much fun as I could remember having at the time. And 2011 in Australia was the same experience and 13 at Muirfield. So I kind of put them in the two different categories. The President's Cup is a blast. It's fun. It's competitive. Um, it's over four days and not three days. So you don't feel like it's as physically demanding as the Ryder cup is. And, you know, the Ryder cup's a different animal. It's something that I always wanted to do. I uh, was always excited to be a part of. I've done three of those with uh, Weber, like you said, and it was a different experience in, uh, at Medina in 2012. It was amazing. Even though we lost, it was probably the greatest week I had ever experienced in my life. Just the closeness of the team, the team dinners, the breakfasts every morning, the stories. Uh, it's something as long as I live. And I know a lot of people look back. I know Keegan Bradley, uh, a friend of mine, he still has an un, 
packed his bag from the 2012 Ryder Cup. Uh, so who knows what that looks like inside the He's so disappointed uh, by what happened that week. But for me, um, yeah, the results sucked. But the time that I had that week didn't. And it was something I wanted to do again. Now, my next two Ryder Cups were on foreign soil, 2014 um, in Scotland and then 2018 in, um, in France. And so those were a little bit different. Um, they're very, very hard weeks. They're long weeks. It's 36 holes on Friday, 36 holes on Saturday, and 18 on Sunday at extreme pressure. Um, and you know, it's, it's not as, it's not as fun. It, that felt like work, like getting into the nitty gritty. Now I enjoy kind of getting in that little foxhole and getting after it and trying to win your match. It's just, uh, a little bit of that joy kind of goes out the window just because the stakes are so high and you can kind of feel that. I still think at times that be, why I feel like we fall a little bit short in some of the Ryder Cups. People say that the United States, they don't care. They don't gel. I disagree with all those things. I've been in every team room. Uh, like I said, I've been in 12 now, nine and three, and they care. They're close. They want it for each other. I just think sometimes in the Ryder Cup, maybe we don't have quite enough fun in the Ryder Cup. And uh, I think it can put a little extra pressure on you. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Paul, I got I to ask. You know, you get the, the the regular tour events, and you see the Kibitzin with the guys, and the and the back and forth on the on the range. When you get to those events, is it all business, or are the guys having breakfast inside the clubhouse? Are they are they are they talking to each other? Um, you know, are, US are, to, to Europe, or is it just all business when they're? There? Are you talking about like the team events? Yeah, the team events. Yeah, in terms so. Of- those yeah, events. like and, and some of the cross team stuff, like the international squad, are they are they really interacting with the U.S. squad or is it just everybody? <laughs> no, on not their own? really. So, so it used to be uh, that way a little bit more for the Presidents Cup. Never in the Ryder Cup, you don't really see the guys um, on the other team. I mean, you'll you'll see them in practice. You'll say hello on the way by. You're not going to be rude. You're friends with these guys the rest of the year. You'll say hello, hey, luck or you know, whatever, something like that. But that's going to yeah. kind of be it. Uh, with the President's Cup team, it used to be more of that kind of intermingling. The PGA Tour used to run it, and they had us in, like, the same um, tent. So you would eat breakfast all in the same place. You'd eat. But Ernie Els this past year, he wanted to change the entire kind of complexity of the way the President's Cup looked. He wanted it to be a lot more of a competitive atmosphere. He wanted it to be a little bit separation, a little bit more separation, a little bit more kind of ant- wrong word. I just think a little bit more of victory kind of mindset. And we saw what happened. That team is really good. They are really talented and they are fearless. And, you know, we were very fortunate with a big comeback, um, a couple of clutch putts late on uh, Saturday and then Sunday, just played extremely well. But I, I really think that President's Cup, when we look back in 20 years, we're going to signal the 2019 one in Australia. It's going to be in the changing point of the way the matches will go. Um, they separated us. Our animosity, a little bit more fire, a little bit less jokey. Um, and so I, I think that'll kind of be the point going forward. That's awesome. So let's bring you back to the tour side now as we kind of bounce around a little bit here. Um, tell us how you, how you met Webby. We ended off there with, with Jerry and tell us how you met Webby and tell us uh, a little bit about the pancake story as well. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So I was working for Sean O'Hare and let's see, this would have been the end of 07, 08, 09 and 10. 
Um, we had a really good run together, won a few times, uh, President's Cup team in 09. 10, we missed the last playoff event. Um, we were still in the world, but, um, you know, he was young and thought that maybe he just needed to change things up. And so for the first time in my life, I was let go. Um, I was shocked, wasn't really ready for it. Uh, we were we were pretty good friends, and we were still playing, you know, high-level golf. And so I was kind of in a like a, a weird situation for me and at a weird life at the time. Uh, the crash kind of 08, 9, 10 of the real estate market wiped away all the money I had made all those good years with VJ and Jerry and um, I was a little bit stuck and so at the end of uh, 2010 I had a few really good options uh, I had one guy in the top 10 another guy in the top 15 in the world offer me a job and I just I had just become really strong into my faith and I just wanted to I wanted my next relationship to last years and Years kind of seems to be one of those marks for a player in a caddy. You know, I always say it's it's like a great marriage, but without the sex. Um, and so you know <laughs> that uh, you know the, the good part gets taken away. Thank goodness if anybody's listening, that's taken away for caddies. Uh, anyhow, um, you know, it's one of those things that it can really get to the point where just the day to day grind, the pressure that you're under, the frustration of not doing the things that you want, it can really wear on a relationship. So. I was about to take a job uh, within an hour, and the phone ring, rang. I didn't know the number. I let it go to voicemail, and it was Webb. And Webb had heard that you know I was available. And so real quick, we looked up the stats. He was 213th in the world. Uh, he had just kept his card in the last term of the year. And you know, I didn't really think that was the direction I wanted to go. I, I didn't have any money, um, and I was going to try to probably go a safer route. But after talking to Webb, that's on the phone. It just seemed like he had all the right answers. And he's joked a few times that I interviewed him instead of him interviewing me. But it was that way. Webb is really strong in his faith. There have been times that Christians feel like if they're really successful at something that that maybe that is like they're putting too much importance on it. But it's, it's just not true. It's just the platform that Webb's been given, you know, to share his faith. And so. We talked about it. He had all these incredible answers. I accepted the job uh, 15 minutes after I got off the phone with him. And uh, like you said, the pancake story came up. Our first event was Sony. We played very average, I think, in the upper 30s. Second event was at the Hope, just around 13th. And the third event was in San Diego. And we missed the cut. And I think this is what changed the re our relationship and a little bit of his career, too. From that point forward, uh, we missed the cut in San Diego, and on Saturday we decided we were going to go to a local golf course and just practice. Well, beforehand, he had heard the story about me and IHOP pancakes, and January is all-you-can-eat pancakes at IHOP. And I said, yeah, buddy, I can usually eat 12. And he goes, you can't eat 12 pancakes. It's impossible. So we went <laughs> we went and ate 15 IHOP pancakes. Um, and I also had sugar-free syrup with those 15 pancakes. And if anybody's ever had products – I'm going to just leave it at that about what happens to the body. Needless yeah. to say, there were a lot of noises that day that were coming out at a very rapid pace. And we spent <laughs> eight hours. Uh, we had a four-hour chipping competition, uh, bushes around trees, backward shots, uh, him and I going head-to-head -head for money. Obviously, a lot of noises coming out at just different times. We had the entire um staff of the green crew out watching us do all this stuff and you know about an hour to really talk about his future things that i had seen through three weeks and so i told him the things that i saw the things that i thought he needed to do to do differently and we 
ran into play the very next week in Phoenix, and he finished top 10. I mean, it's amazing when I look back at the year that he had, and I had written down all these goals for him, and yeah, I think there was seven top 10s were my goal, and 14 top 10s out of 28 events, which would have been incredible. And uh, he ended up with 12 top 10s, two wins, second on the FedEx Cup, top 10 in the world, made 9.3 million um, throughout the world uh, that year, and really supplanted himself as being one of the best players in the world. And for me, it was obviously a great experience to – it was the second young guy I had O'Hare and Weber. Um, and I feel like the stuff that, that VJ taught me, that him and I learned together, and it really watching it be put into play for a younger player, it's incredible the amount of satisfaction you can get out of that um, to be able to help somebody achieve a goal. And obviously, when he achieves a goal, I end up achieving goals as well. So it, it goes hand in hand. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. that Did, did that come natural to you? in terms of like, and I listen to, to how you speak and, and the way in which you talk is, and everything is, it's we and a team and you're just fully, fully engrossed and involved with that, that whole team of, of that caddy and player relationship. Was that, was that something that came natural to you right away or was that taught to you over the years? It did come natural. It's one of the reasons why I still believe in my heart that I, I couldn't make it as a player on the PGA tour. Now, obviously injury and, and that led to, you know, struggles on the golf course as well, but I loved team events. I grew up playing baseball and basketball and basketball. I wasn't that good at, but I, you know, atmosphere. And by yeah. the time I stopped growing and, and the, I became a junior, my ball handling skills were gone. That was gone, but I was a good baseball player. I love the team atmosphere. And then I go to, to college to play golf and it's a team atmosphere. I loved winning team events. I didn't care. My, myself, in fact, I never won a college event. I finished in top three 13 times in four years and never won. And, you know, I think there was a part of that when I felt, I just felt a little alone. I felt um, I was very introverted uh, at that time. And as you can tell, not as much so anymore. Uh, but I uh, but I think, you know, uh, a good friend of mine out here always said I had the nylon rope disease. I mean, I was I was allergic to nylon when I got inside the ropes. But I think more so than anything, I love <laughs> the team atmosphere. I, I love marriage. You know, I love being able to help young people get better. I like talking to colleges. And trying to help these young people realize that the most important thing you have to figure out is how to put a process in place. It doesn't matter if it's just athletics. If you're in business, if you're doing what you're doing right now, if you're running a company, you have to be able to put a process in play that you believe is right and you got to follow it. And yeah. I think that's my strength is being able to do that. I, I study the golf swing um, almost nonstop. I'm a golf nerd. So I love the game. I'm always trying to get better. Um, I've done pretty much everything out there. I've done Aimpoint Express. I've done regular Aimpoint. Um, decade golf, Scott Fawcett. I have done, I've just talked to Tim and, you know, Bryson DeChambeau, just about a lot of stuff they do with air densities and green densities. And so I'm always trying to learn and try to figure out little ways just to tilt the scales in our favor a little bit. I love that aspect. And I just happen to work for a guy that is like the – me of the leader that you want um he's my boss he hates that uh you know but he is my boss he doesn't like it when i say it but he's just so good at letting me be me um and then you know he always says i i gave him this line but you know i'm the i'm the vp my job is to give him the best information i can and he's got to make that final call and uh, i just love being in that kind of uh, in a relationship yeah that's awesome awesome 
How, you mentioned you mentioned um, you know ever evolving and continuous education and continuous learning. What um, what have you seen in, in all your years out on the tour in terms of um, the, that the job that you're in in that caddy position? How has it changed? What's what's kind of the most difficult thing that you find on a, a day uh, you know a weekend weekend day in day out basis? And, you know, what what is your daily schedule and what is your daily process? And let our listeners know kind of what does a regular week look for you? So kind of a three-pronged question there for you. Yeah. Yeah, let's start the schedule first and then kind of go into how the position has changed. But, yep. you know, scheduling like today is a great example. Um, I live in the I live on the East Coast um, in Northeast Florida. Um, I got up uh, at 11.45 at night Pacific Coast time, so East Coast time. Uh, flew to Charlotte, Charlotte out here to Napa, California, landed, got a rental car, uh, into the place, went and got groceries, dropped the groceries off, um, and then went straight out and, and got after coursework. And so went back here. Um, it was already uh, almost nine o'clock back home. And so I'd been going at it for 18 hours and hadn't stopped yet. And, uh, you know, it's that's kind of a normal travel day throughout the year on the PGA tour. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to know that I, I know a lot of the golf courses, so I don't have to do as much coursework as I once did. And technology has had a dramatic impact on our job. Uh, the, the results that we get now week to week are so detailed. And uh, obviously we pay handsomely for them to be that detailed, but it it's worth every penny because it, you know, it saves us so much time on the golf course. We've got, picture books now and so runouts and carry numbers that we used to have to we would be two to two to four guys every hole you would see out caddies shooting each other you know making sure that we have the numbers making sure the yardages are correct all the way around and and then we still have the green books at least through the end of uh 2021 which means a lot less work that we have to do so um i think a typical work day for a caddy is you know if we tee off at eight o'clock in the morning i'm typically going to be at the course at the latest six. Um, so you're up about 4.45, uh, making sure you get everything done in the morning, uh, making sure you, you stretch and then go eat some breakfast and just kind of get ready for the day. You still got to fill out your, your green book. You got to fill out your pen sheet and make sure that you're dialed in. Um, you know, I think the, I think the hardest part of doing what I do for a living is the fact that I have a family. Um, it's so hard leaving. Um, my wife knows what I'm doing. She's uh, an athlete as well. So she knows that I'm coming out here, but the kids don't care. They just, they want daddy home. And I think that's the hardest part. My daughter's 16 now. I've missed a lot of her. And that's been difficult. And my son's seven and a half. And, you know, he, he doesn't care. He just wants me home. And I think that's been the hardest part. Uh, and I think that the, the kind of last part is the trickiest part of being a caddy is just the continual condition change that you have from day to day. You know, like this week will be in the mornings when it's 55 degrees, Webb's probably going to hit a five iron, 185 yards. And by the time the afternoon comes, he's going to hit that same five iron, 200 yards. And it's kind of like constant, you know, move numbers up hole by hole. If he hits a five iron on the 10th hole in the morning and it goes 185, well, by the time we get to uh, the 15th hole, it might be going 192. And by the time we get to, you know, if we made the last hole, it might be going 198. And the problem or is that distance control is so important because these guys are all so good that you have to be on top of that. And sometimes there's not a rhyme or reason. And I think that's why more and more I'm trying to go down again, Tim Tucker, who worked for Bryson DeChambeau for 
for all those years. He spent about two hours with me um, last week and just trying to figure out. You can never figure the game out, but you can try to make things make sense. And um, if I can do that more and more and more, then, then that would be good. Uh, and then the last part was how has the caddy profession changed? And it's changed. Uh, <laughs> it's, it looks completely different than it did 21 years ago when I started. Uh, first of all, the level – yeah, the level of caddy has gone up just immeasurably. Uh, it's incredible, the talent level now. And any, It doesn't matter if it's just sports. Anything in business where there's more money, you're going to have more people vying for those positions. And that's what you've seen. Um, you know, when I first came out, a winner's check uh, might have been $300,000. Uh, and, and, you know, now we're going to be looking at a lot of winner's checks, uh, $1.5 million or more. And so that's a lot for a caddy there and you know even of a just a good solid year to keep your card now is going to take person so you know a guy caddying for the 125th guy on the pga tour he can still make a good living now and you used to not be able to do that way back in the day you'd have three or four caddies into a motel six guys would bring uh, a cot or they would bring a blow-up mattress and blow it up and you would just that was the only way to make life out of it where now we can afford to stay places by ourselves and uh, we know how fortunate we are but it's incredible to me, too, the, these young guys that come out, how hungry and humble they are as caddies. I've gotten, I would say, 40 different phone calls in the last 10 years from young caddies just asking me questions about how to get better, how to grow, situationally, how to do things different. I was too, I, I guess, I don't know, arrogant, prideful. I don't know what it was, but I wouldn't have called and asked those questions when I first came out. And, you know, I look back now and I think probably for a couple of reasons, there's only a few guys I really would have probably thought I could learn from. And I think the second part was just a little too prideful. But, yeah, the caddy profession is it's in a really, really good place. Uh, that's good to hear. And it just, I guess it rides with the tide with the, you know, as the players start to elevate them and with the tiger effect, everything just kind of, moves up that's who, it that's it who, who who's the who's the one person paul that you can think back of over your career you know you've probably watched thousands upon thousands of guys hit balls on the range and you know all the pairings with webby and jerry and vj but you know who's the one player that you've seen hit a golf ball or heard or that's that sound that it makes that you kind of just in your mind and that Wow. Like, I, I know you mentioned, you know, you know doing my research, you know, Tiger Woods at number seven on Hog Hill was the one shot that you <laughs> kind of were like, oh my God. Yeah. But was there a player that kind of blew you away? Yeah. So let's, yeah. So let's just equation. Let's, let's say no Tiger answer because, yeah. again, I worked for a guy being VJ. I worked for him for over five years and he'll go down in history as one of the 10 best ball strikers that, that lived. And Tiger could do things that we just couldn't. Uh, with the irons um, it was just incredible to watch but I think the one guy that very um, I don't know how he flies under the radar he's pretty quiet um, he's been playing at this level for uh, I would guess almost 20 years now but it would be Paul Casey um, I was fortunate enough to work for Paul, Paul in 2020 at Maui Weber didn't win and Paul's caddy couldn't make it back over so I worked for Paul and um, I had been, you know, up against him in Ryder Cups plenty of times, probably been paired with him a hundred times on the PGA Tour, and I've always seen it. It's always been impressive, but then to caddy for it for three practice rounds and four straight tournament days and 25-mile-an-hour wins, it was just 
ridiculous to watch. And even Weber and I, we just got paired with him a couple of times recently and we get done and like, we'll sit at night and we're just kind of look at each other sometimes. Like I, I just don't, the guy hits it in the middle of the face every time. It seems like he hits drivers however he wants. If he wants to hit a mid-height cut, he does. If he wants to hit a low draw, he does. If he wants to hit a high draw, he does. It just seems like he's in full command of what he does all the time. It's impressive to watch. I like it, too, because he's not like if you were to build, you would have probably a much different physique. You'd have Obviously, his nickname is Popeye, those big old forearms that he has. But, yeah. you know, Paul's got a little bit of that old school setup with the rounded shoulders. Uh, you know, he's not doesn't have that really back like a lot of these young guys do. And I think that's why Paul's never really battled injury. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that he does, I think, that should be mirrored. He doesn't get overly technical with his golf swing. He uses Peter Costas once or twice a year for checkers. And that's kind of it. And goes about his business. And he has been – an elite player for an extremely long time. Yeah, there's there's no arguing that. One uh, one golf question, and then we'll give you one uh, personal question that I know is near and dear to your heart that I want you to speak upon, and and then we'll okay. let you go here. What um what's what's the one event if you if you, if you were to walk away tomorrow with you and Webby and and you know you guys you know ride off into the sunset together? What's the one event that you guys are looking for? Is it Augusta? Is it is it another event there? Because yeah. I know you've got the U.S. Open together, but what's that one that one you guys are looking for? It was always the Players Championship. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough to win the U.S. Open in 2012, and um, I grew up in Ponte Vedra. Uh, before the uh, was grassed, I had walked and actually played holes before it was even fully fully seated and grassed. Um, I knew the superintendent the type at the time. Uh, Ray Height was his name, and my grandfather knew him well. And so for me, born and raised in that area, uh, probably played over 700 rounds around the golf course and um, competed in what I've caddied in 21 TPCs now. And that was the one I always wanted to win the second most on on earth. Uh, that was my one. So our win there in 2018 was extremely emotional for me um, in so many ways. My grandfather taught me to play the game there and, my dad is still with me, and uh, you know he was part of that as well. So that was, Augusta for me is is my first one. Uh, I heard Jack Nicholas give a quote recently that he had that on his fourth on his list, which I don't know why that surprised me so much. But uh, the Masters for me, I grew up with not being that far away, a four and a half hour drive. Um, I would go as a kid back then. Um, Five dollars at the gate on Monday, ten dollars on Tuesday, and fifteen dollars on Wednesday, and so. From the time I was 10 through 18 every year, you would just go right up to the gate, give them your five bucks on Monday, and away you went. Um, we would spend <laughs> wow. the night at a hotel and give them 10 bucks on Tuesday, and away you went. Uh, it's amazing how much that's changed, but I yep. also think that's that's so special for me to be able to remember that and um, to be around those grounds. And so, one for me. And I, I think if I had a next, it would be, and this tournament has grown on me. It, not be that way it would be the british open and i say the british open people can argue the open championship but i'm american um my open is the u.s open but the british open aka the open championship would on which site uh where um i've just been blown away with what the old course has done uh my my first time around it i i had americaned it is what i say which means i 
every I. I crossed every T. I had that golf course figured out. And through three days, I think we were in seventh place, BJ and I, and we were just cruising. And then I showed up on Sunday. The wind flipped the other direction about 25 miles an hour, and I had no idea what. Fairways. We went from hitting a driver down the fairway to a seven iron down a different fairway off the tee. I didn't know what was happening. And I remember leaving there thinking that this is the stupidest golf course I've ever played. (laughs) And every single year I've gone back, I've learned more and more and more and more. And I don't know coincidence. I don't know if it was a fluke or I don't know if they were geniuses, but they built a genius golf course. We did just the the bunkering positions, um, the blind tee shots, the ability to, you know, if you get a, a windy day out of one direction, well, the, these nine are going to play hard. These nine are going to play tough. All right, all right. And I just I'm in love with that golf course. And that's where we're going next year. And that would obviously an incredible place to, to win the Open Championship. And there's quite yeah, a few yeah. other sites too. Carnoustie would be a that's true. You're. Um, obviously, the old course would be special. Yeah, you're you're right. I was over there. Uh, you know, my dad being Scottish. For for our listeners that know, we went over in '05 when they hosted the Open. I remember we didn't have the opportunity to play the old course, but we played uh, the Eden course on property, and we teed off late morning. I'll never forget it. And you know, we we go out in the first six seven holes are uh, you know into the wind, and I look at my dad and yeah, I say to him, I go, "Well, I'm glad the the last few are going to be downwind." And he kind of gives me this wry little grin, and he knows the tide's coming in. And we ended up playing, I think, 13 or 14 holes into the breeze. That oh, day that's terrible. <laughs> that, wow. Man, oh, he knew it was so, coming. He knew it was coming because I obviously he had a little uh, a little bit of experience on me. So, Paul, wow. I, I, know you've had a, I know you've had a long day here, so we're going to let you go. But I want, I, want to, I want you to have this opportunity to speak on it. Talk about the Tesori Foundation. Talk about your son. I want to hear about it. I want our mm. listeners to know about it. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Um, yes, near and dear to my heart for sure. So for those of you that don't know, my son Isaiah, who's seven and a half now, he was born in 2014 in January, and uh, he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, um, which is the third copy of the 21st chromosome. And, you know, it was uh, it was time of our life we didn't really know what was going to happen at first uh he was misdiagnosed no one did anything wrong in that misdiagnosis they just didn't know pre-birth that he had down syndrome so he was showing signs um and a lot of miracles happened he had bleeding on the brain he had swelling on the brain um there was an issue with a valve in his heart and so they kept him in NICU for a couple of weeks and all of those things just went away they hadn't reasons they just looked at us and say it's yeah we know how your faith is and so i know what y'all believe it's a miracle we don't have any a reason why but you know he does have down celebrated that fact and i was very new in that but you know it's been an incredible ride since then what we decided to do is we have the tesori family foundation you can check us out tesorifamilyfoundation.org but we started it in 2009 late nine early late nine early ten and, you know, we really didn't have a, a permanent place to put money. We just really focused on homeless shelters at home. We focused on food banks at home. Uh, a cool thing called Christmas Tree Angel, which is where we surprise um, some homeless families. We do 25 families each year, mom, dad, and all the kids. And we surprise them with presents. They write down what they want from Santa. 
and then we go find them, we wrap them, and we deliver them. And it's incredible that you, you start off trying to help people, and what you end up doing is you get more joy out of it than even they're going to get just because it feels so good to be able to give back. And um, what we decided to do is turn golf into the special needs community. So in 2014, we did our first all-star kids clinic. So we do a clinic, 25 kids with special needs, one-on-one instruction with PGA Tour players, caddies, coaches, and the local first tee. And it has been incredible. Um, we were supposed to have 22 uh, last year, 2020, throughout the PGA Tour season, but COVID kind of put a – this year it looks like we're going to be at about a dozen that we're going to do throughout the country uh, throughout the year. And then each year back on more and more to that. And it's been so special for us. And just to be able to give back to what this game has done so much for me. Um, I'll never be able to give back um, how fortunate that I am and, and the things that I've gotten to experience. But if we can just give back a little bit of that joy that golf gives, um, and if we can do that through, obviously, the special needs community, which a lot of times they're not celebrated. Uh, we live in a world right now where there are countries trying to eradicate kids with Down syndrome by aborting them um, and even killing them after they're born. And I just wish I could tell everybody this, and that is, man, Isaiah's not broken. If somebody gave me a chance right now, if God came down and said, hey, we will let you change your son's diagnosis, I'd say, no, thank you. I think I'm the one missing a chromosome because he is just pure joy. And he sees this world the way I wish I could see it. I get mad if somebody's holding me up in the left-hand lane, and yet my son will have therapy for three hours in a day, and he's still joyful, ready to go. Okay, what's next? What are we doing next? Um, And he has definitely had a huge impact on me. I still remember we had a big seven-shot lead in 2018, the players, and I remember thinking about my – because those days are still really hard. People think it's just a cruise fest out there, and it's not that way at all. It's a long, hard day with a big lead. And I just thought about Isaiah. What would he tell me right now? He'd be like, Daddy, chill out. Just have fun. Enjoy this. And, you know, it's it's incredible the impact that he's had on my life. So, again, check us out, TesoriFamilyFoundation.org. We have a lot of cool programs that we do um, and would love for uh, listeners to get him. Amazing. That's awesome. And uh, uh, we'll uh, put up a link on all of our social media and, and definitely uh, spread the word on that. It's such a Thank great you. cause. Paul. Well done. Thank you. Paul, we're going to uh, we're gonna let you go. Appreciate your time. I know you had a real long, long day, and I appreciate your fitness in on that schedule. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. Let's, let's keep in touch. I really appreciate it. The questions were awesome. I loved being on. Um, good luck to you as you continue to grow. Um, and hopefully you will. And uh, maybe if we can pull off one of those big wins again, we can do this again. Amazing. Thanks, Paul. Right. And uh, go get some rest. All right. I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Absolutely. What a pleasure. What a chat that was with Paul. All around great guy. Um, some real cool stories. Perfect timing in terms of the Ryder Cup. I talked off air with Paul in terms of, um, you know, what could happen here. And, and we didn't get too much into it, but don't count out Webb Simpson just yet, folks. Uh, if Brooks Kepka can't play, uh, Webb might be the next guy on the slate. I think it's gonna, it would probably be in that him, uh, Billy Horschel, or Kevin Na type of scenario. And uh, I think there's a, maybe a possibly a reason why Webby's out in, uh, in Napa right now playing and that is to keep sharp just in case uh, Brooks can't go um, then you can uh, you can call him uh, up to uh, Wisconsin and Kohler to get in there at Whistling Straits and get ready for that Ryder Cup and speaking of such Ryder Cup 
the European squad is set now. And before we send this off to break after that phenomenal chat, uh, let's talk a little bit about that European squad. We're going to get into a full uh, Ryder Cup preview next week for my favorite week of the golf season, and that is that Ryder Cup. Every two years it comes along, and uh, I can't wait for it. I think it's the best golf event. It's different. It's a team event, um, different formats, and it's not just your traditional individual golf format. Go out and play, shoot the lowest score, minus 12, minus 14, minus 20, whatever, and and uh, go play. There's just so much more in terms of the format, foursomes, four ball, singles, uh, match play compared to stroke play. So there's there's different forms of golf, and it's nice to show those off because there there is a bunch of different games in golf, and and things can be different than just going out and posting your lowest score and putting it into the handicap system and and talking about uh, you know what what you shot and where you can improve and all that stuff. There is some fun to be had out there with some different games, and and I wish more amateur golfers and and more um, advanced golfers got into it, other than just uh, going out and playing your own ball every single time and probably playing uh, one or two tee decks back from what you actually should. But uh, we'll get into that on another day. Let's get into this European um, Ryder Cup squad. It was finalized at the BMW at Wentworth. Hope you checked out my picks. We didn't quite cash on them. Had uh, Fleetwood, Molinari, and Ross Fisher. All all three picks were inside the top 40, but just couldn't get any cash on those. Those were some some last-minute picks there if you were following along on social media. But uh, the likes... And we've talked about this for the last few weeks here, that this is going to be a heavy-laden English squad and UK squad. And when it all comes down to it, 8 of the 12 um, are coming from that island. We thought it could be upwards of 10 in terms of uh, possibly getting maybe a Ross McIntyre on there and and some others. But, um, you know, he doesn't quite fit in. Victor Perez doesn't quite fit in. But, uh, you know, automatic qualifiers coming from England. Paul Casey, Matt Fitzpatrick, Tyrrell Hatton, Tommy Fleetwood, the stalwart Lee Westwood steals that last spot. Then we go to um, Ireland, Ireland, and we got Rory as the stalwart um, qualifier. Victor Hovland qualifies out of Norway. And then Spain has an automatic qualifier in John Rahm. And uh, Barrett Weisberger, um, actually, he gets the last spot. Westwood right before him. Uh, from Austria, and then your captain's picks wasn't much conversation. It was more about you know who was going to be the automatic qualifiers. Like we said, Weisberger gets it, so Lowry gets the pick. If Lowry got it, Weisberger was getting the pick. And then the two picks that we thought we we knew and we thought were coming, Sergio and Poulter, uh, Poulter rounding out that uh, six Englishmen on out of twelve on this European Ryder Cup squad. So. Uh, a pretty solid team. The U.S. is going to have their hands full. A good mix of, uh, you know, not a whole lot of rookies on the, on this squad in terms of when you start to break it down and some a good mix of veterans and um, guys who have been there for a year or two. You know, Rom's in his second or third. You got Hovland and Lowry and Weisberger with their first. So you've got three rookies as compared to, I believe, and we'll break it down for sure next week, but probably four or five. Uh, maybe even more on that uh, on that U.S. squad, but when you start to look at uh, this European squad, another year of changeover, and there's not a single um, pairing 
other than a few that that we can really put out there you know you 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 lose the the mollywood pairing you lose um some of the other pairings that were available to you in 18 with, with Stenson and Rose and those types of players that didn't make this squad that have been so um vital over the 16 and 18 um european dominance here as we've won four out of the last five seven out of the last nine and and go back all the way to 12 and 14 um and those are the years i'm referring to folks and really you know you can use you know casey and hatton they've played together before we've seen polter and mcelroy a, a few times in different formats before we've even seen polter and rom once uh in 2016 we've seen McElroy and Sergio but that's about it in terms of traditional pairings that we're gonna see you know you're not gonna see your um you know your Casey and your Rose or your Stenson and your Rose anymore um those pairings are gone so when you start to break this down um I think you're gonna get um Casey and and Hatton I think you're gonna get Fleetwood and and Fitzpatrick and to you know you and you're going to get Poulter and McElroy you, you eventually you'll at one one point in time I think you'll get McElroy and Lowry I think it just means so much to those guys I think you'll get Rahm and Sergio possible um you know possible on this one but the the guy that I, that stands out to me and when you start to look at you know the last five Ryder Cups and and some of his pairings and who who always seems to draw the rookie you know, he's now turned into the, the Colin Montgomery, the Nick Faldo of this team, and that's Lee Westwood. And showed a little bit of a better form uh, at BMWs. You know, four solid rounds makes the cut. He's, he's really starting to put some effort in from what we're seeing on social media. And you look at, you know, the likes of Luke Donald, Nicholas Coldstart, Jamie Donaldson, Martin Keimer. Westwood's that guy that, that Captain Harrington's going to go to, and I think you're going to see him with the likes of a Lowry, the likes of a Victor Hovland, and a Burnt Wiesberger, and, and they're going to put Westwood with those rookies, and, and he's going to carry it along, and they'll, they'll load up on some of those um, pairings that they can go to, Casey and Hatton, and and uh, Poulter and McElroy, McElroy and Sergio, and those types of pairings to hopefully lead them through on tough soil here. Let Westwood steady the ship with some of the rookies, you know, how good would that Westwood Hovland pairing be? Even Weisberger, you know, there's not many players out there right now in the world playing better than Bert Weisberger. So, um, real interesting. We're hoping to land a couple guests uh, next week in terms of our Ryder Cup preview. Make sure you're tuning in for that. Other than that, when we get back from break, we're going to get into our interview with, uh, with Mr. Seymour and we'll do what we learned, a few picks that we've got to end off the episode, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Here comes the, here comes the, here comes the, y'all don't really want it like yeah. Here comes the, no, here comes the, Real life passion for real life sports. All right, folks, welcome back from break. Hope you enjoyed a little segment there from Triple G, Ginger's Gridiron and Golf Podcast. I hope you're following along on all of the social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, 
stay tuned for some big YouTube news coming up in the next weeks to come. And uh, you can check out all the content daily, weekly, our weekly golf picks and more as we uh, move into a heavy golf season with the Ryder Cup and the new season and the flip over happening. And obviously mid-season form here, soon to be with NFL football. Let's get into our chat. We're not going to wait too long. We're going to find a way to make you some money here in week two after, a, as always, a chaotic week one week in the NFL football Let's get over to Donnie Wrightside Seymour. All right, Triple G listeners, let's give a first-time huge welcome to host of the NFL show on SBR uh, Sports Picks, co-host of In Play Sports Tonight and the early line at Sports Grid. You can find him everywhere. He's our go-to guy for NFL and MLB betting. Donnie Wrightside Seymour. Donnie, you on the line? I am on the line here. Happy to be here. Uh, beautiful. I appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy guy here as we just finished up week one and you're starting to get ready for, for week two and, and the NFL season and MLB playoffs, but uh, appreciate you coming aboard. Appreciate it. Like, look, hey, when the NFL gets rolling, we do a lot of content, as you know, in this business, but early on in the season, we're energized from this content. So happy to be here. Happy to talk some NFL and I'll see what you got. Beautiful. Donnie, what, um, how, give our listeners a little background about yourself before we get going and, and we get ready for week two in the NFL season here. How'd you, how'd you get involved with, with sports grid and SBR sports picks and, and, and get involved with what you're doing now? Yeah, long time coming because, you know, I graduated school, William Patterson in New Jersey in the year 2000. Went right into the finance business, spent about uh, seven to eight years in that business, then went into business for myself, bought a couple of hoagie shops here on the East Coast, managed those, ran those for a couple of years. But I've always had a passion, Stefan, for the sports gambling business, but particularly sports content. And when I went to school, I didn't go for mass communications or anything like that. I was a history major, expecting probably to be a history teacher in high school, maybe coach some football and do things like that. But career paths took a little bit different direction. The finance business was hot back in the early 2000s. Got into that, made some good money, which allowed me to do some other things in life. But I have to say, getting into this business, and I, I always recommend the people out here, if you have a passion for something, always go for it. Because I was one of those people that said, look, I really like to handicap games. I've always bet my entire life, right through high school, college, you know, into my early 20s, mid-20s, late 20s. But I wanted to see if I can make a go at this thing by handicapping games, trying to make a name for myself. So doing shows early on on the Spreaker application, blog talk radio, Stefan, I didn't care if anybody was listening to me at all. I just wanted to practice and truly see if I liked it because I did have a life already set up with a couple franchises. You can't just jump into one thing if you don't have the passion or think you can make it. So in 2016, I finally sold my businesses. But all along, I was getting into the business. And what I mean by that is, Entering in, you know, buying your first you know, laptop for programming, buying your first camera, teaching yourself how to use YouTube in like, you know, 2011, 2012, doing your own videos, editing your own videos. Even as I said, again, if nobody was watching, I was always trying to better my craft. Came up across a group with trend betting, joined up with them. I've always had my own pick selling sites for the past decade, but content has been very good to me lately. And I still do have my websites, but don't charge anything like to give my information now out for free because the content business basically handling the rest of my bills. But if there's one thing, Stefan, I can say to your audience out there, if you're interested in the sports gambling business or handicapping business, always bet on yourself, bet on your craft, invest in yourself, whether it's laptops, whether it's microphones, whether it's, you know, TV packages or multiple TVs and monitors, invest in yourself. Because if you believe in yourself first, 
other people will believe in you. Ah, that's great advice, Donnie. I'd love to hear that. Donnie, um, let, let's flip over now to the, uh, you know, the gambling side and, and the betting side. We, we come off of a hot week one here. What were your guidelines going in or what were your kind of rules to yourself or rules in general that you use um, in any season and maybe specifically here in 2021 um, in in looking at the NFL? Is it, you know, lean a little bit more heavy on the home dogs? Are you do you feel you got to edge on game game totals? Is it props? Is it in in game stuff? Where did you feel 2021 you were able to you were going to be able to make some uh, make some action? It's an interesting question, and it's multi-pronged per se, because over the years, and this also has a lot to do with the legalized betting here in the United States, what you can and can't bet, because it used to be just what? Hey, you had a line on the football game, and you had a total. That was it. Yeah. Now, each and every sports book giving you many more opportunities to bet, always during my life. You know, you're trying to take a look at public versus, you know, sharp money per se, but that's not always going to lead you in that direction. If you see a line that you believe is off, you try to do your due diligence on that football team and that football game to see, you know, why is that line minus three when I think it might have a possibility to be minus one or flipped over to a favorite on the other side. But entering into the season, and even two years ago, I was strictly like a first-half player, a full-game player, and a total player. But I completely changed that over the past year and a half to two years with the advent of team totals itself. Because I figured to myself, Stefan, why would I extend myself and worry about what the other team is going to do if I'm not sure about the mismatch? So just to break it down in layman terms, right? You have a really good offense on one side of the football. You say, well, I have to really think they can get over their team total. Let's just say it's 24 and a half. Yeah. But the game total is 47 and a half. So now I have to handicap the other team's offense, the defense of my team that I'm betting, and also the other team's, you know, defense as well so it's a little bit simpler here but again a couple years ago we weren't able to do this but with the advent of team totals i've sort of switched what i like and what i can pay attention to now you also brought up a good concept here you know like the home dog and whatnot what's different between 2020 and 2021 of course will be the fans are back in the stands now so if you had a home dog what's the reason a lot of time we like a home dog tough environment to play you go in there's 65,000 people cheering against one side they had to travel they have to put up with the crowd that wasn't the case last year so even when it affected my team totals, because if I have a game, let's just take specifics, not even this week here, a team going down to play New Orleans in the Dome. We all know it's one of the best home field advantages, similar to playing at Kansas City at Seattle. You have yep. to factor into that handicap and whether or not it's just a team total or just a game total outright. We didn't have that last year. So you can go into each and every situation with impunity saying, hey, Pittsburgh's going on the road to play Kansas City. It doesn't really matter all that much other than they're going to sleep in a different bed and have to travel. There are going to be no fans that are going to obstruct the third down routines and the loud cheering and the false starts and trying to make those auto plays that is a huge difference here and early in the season we're going to see how that plays out now also a betting philosophy that i've always used which is different than a lot of people i sit generally out the first two weeks of the football season to get an idea of who's playing who who's playing what and who looks good the first week of the season as we always see the big time upsets i didn't expect that out of this team but also at the same time stefan you're looking at these football games and going oh my goodness, this team is really good. But you have to keep in mind that that team is not as good as they appeared in week one. And that team that was really bad, they're probably not really as bad as they were week one. Week two, overreaction week, always one of my famous, my favorite ones of the season. Yeah, and you're right. And, and so many people come out flying out the gates, right? And they, they take their stack and they, you know, they're investing way, way too much right exactly. out of the on, on exactly. week one. So, um, so let's take a look at week two. Is there anything that catches your eye? Is it a possibly, a, you know, good value to me per se in Miami, you know, at home in that home dog situation 
or maybe the Chargers minus one and a half um, against Dallas. Um, is there anything that catches your eye on that week two line? That's an interesting one also, obviously with Dallas losing a close game here uh, on Thursday night football to the world champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Maybe that line is on the move. We'll see if, you know, some people say, boy, they played really well. Maybe they should be the favorite. But also when you take a look at some games here like Denver and Jacksonville, you know, taking a look to see how Denver goes on the road with Teddy Bridgewater, how they can match up with Jacksonville, who again had a struggling season in 2020, but those some of those numbers that open up the minus threes, the minus two and a half, they look really short going up against a team like the Jacksonville Jaguars. Also moving it around the board. I know we just talked about the Dallas Cowboys and the Los Angeles Chargers, but even some of the bigger profile games that you might have in the card, like a Tennessee and a Seattle, the same thing we just talked about a few moments ago here, Stefan, looking at, hey, Tennessee traveling to Seattle. Well, last year, again, there were no fans in the stands. The 12th man will be out there in full force. That's going to be a tough game for Tennessee to enter into and play. Also, when you take a look at some totals, how some of these teams bounce back as well. We saw the Dallas Cowboys. The offense looked really efficient out there. The wide receiver certainly doing some damage as well as Dak Prescott. Looks like he never got injured and didn't miss a beat in that one. And you're looking at one of those totals around 50 and a half or 51. Can the Dallas Cowboys keep that mojo going when they play the Los Angeles Chargers? And of course, Kansas City and Baltimore, right? Take a look at that opening line. Minus one for the Kansas City Chiefs on the road to Baltimore. Almost begging you to take the Chiefs at this point. But we do know Baltimore is certainly a tough home team. Yeah, that's a great little breakdown there week two, Donnie. I, I love it. And some great uh, insight for our listeners to uh, to take home with them. Donnie, is there still any value in um, divisional win bets or some future bets here in terms of divisional wins? You see, you know, you're still on the board, Pittsburgh around that plus 350, Seattle around that plus 275 mark, or even some of the team win totals. A team like Carolina uh, still posting at, uh, at seven and a half as we, as we record this, or a Miami mm-hmm. at a nine and a half. Is there any value there at all still? Yeah, you know what's interesting about that too? Because you're going to have some wild swings early on. I always like to equate it because you never know who's listening for the first time or saying, hey, you know what? I don't really bet these type of totals or you know to win the division type of props or even live team totals throughout the season, which a couple years ago, again, Stephen, we didn't have these type of bets, which is fantastic. Now there's a lot more ways that you can make money, but also the wild shifts from week one, week two, week three, because if you're coming into the season, right, and let's just take a look at the Dallas Cowboys to win the division in the NFC East. Even though they lost on opening night to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they had the lead with about two minutes to go. If they would have held on, that would have been a massive boost. So what would everybody look to bet here? How can I get my sink my teeth into the Dallas Cowboys now that it looks like they're going to be a good football team? We weren't sure in training camp. Dak Prescott didn't have a lot of practice time. We didn't know if the ankle would hold up, if the throwing shoulder. He looked electric on Thursday night football. So over those first one to two weeks, you're going to get some wild movement in the division prices to win those. But also keep in mind some of those Team totals will shift along with those, but you want to keep in mind, you can't take everything out of the first week, maybe two weeks and say, boy, this team is going to be a really good football team because you also have to look at the scheduling. Were they supposed to win week one? Were they supposed to win week two? Is their schedule getting a little bit soft in the beginning of the season and then starts to turn up at the end of the season? A lot goes into that. So if you can find value with a lot of teams, and I'd say the, probably the best strategy would be, depending how long each sports book keeps up those win totals for the season, I always like to look at the underpriced and undervalued teams. What I mean by that is, let's just say a football team like the Indianapolis Colts, for instance, they have a really tough schedule over the first five to six weeks. So if you're looking at a team total before the season between eight and a half to nine and a half, 
If they, let's just say, go two and four through their first six games, and that line turns into a depressed number of seven and a half or seven in that range, their schedule lightens up on the back end as they get healthier with T.Y. Hilton coming back. We'll see how Carson Wentz progresses with that foot injury, even though he did start in week one. Those are some of the ones I like to take a look at because even though most people in the public will say, wait, this team stinks here, Steph, and they're two and four, but yep. hold up here. The next four to five weeks, the advantage is theirs, and they can climb right back into that race. Yeah, so and and that's kind of a, a theme that I'm, I'm hearing throughout is, is you know, don't, don't look at that short term for our listeners out yeah. there. Really kind of look at the, the entire season and everything mm-hmm. in its entirety. Um, let's move to uh, its entirety and, and move to the kind of that final prop bet that I wanted to pick your brain on. Any value, you know, we know, especially now after, after week one here um, with Kansas City and, and Tampa Bay obviously winning like me and you have talked about here. Mm-hmm. Is there any value in that next crop of teams? Um, the Rams, the the Packers, the Browns, the Bills. Um, is there any value there that you see that any of our listeners could could put something down and, and make uh, make some money on? Yeah, if you take a look at the seasonality on a whole, right? Everybody's going to look towards the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Everybody's going to look towards the Kansas City Chiefs. So usually as value betters, if you want to bet them, that's fine. You know, they're paying like five to one, six to one in that price mm-hmm. range to win the Super Bowl. But we always like to say, hey, if you're going to hold my money, right, Stefan, for six months, I want to get a really nice return back on that. Let's look more for the 10 to ones, the 15 to ones, and the 20 to ones. The one thing that you do know is going to take place here, the Green Bay Packers are going to be a very good regular season team. We see it time and time again, but something happens to them in the playoffs, like reaching the NFC Championship game, losing to Seattle, losing to the 49ers. You saw last year on their home turf, losing to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But they sit at like a 12 to 1 price here. The Rams at 15 to 1. I have to say, in the NFC West, that's such a tough division out there. You have four teams legitimately that can make a case for either A, winning the division or possibly getting to the playoffs. So if you come out standing and battle tested from that cut from that division, particularly the Rams at 15 to 1 with Matthew Stafford, with a great play caller in McVeigh, those are the teams I like to look out for. Also, I can't tell you how high I am on the Cleveland Browns. Just two years ago, I get out of Cleveland stuff, and I don't want to take Anything I want anything to do with that team. I don't want to be the ahead of the curve because I don't believe in them. Freddie Kitchens, young quarterback. They couldn't get it together. But now they have Stefanski calling the plays here as talented a football team as you will find in the NFL. They're sitting here at 15 to 1. So those price ranges here in that is what I would be taking a look at. New Orleans Saints, 30 to 1, a little bit dipping down. The Titans, 25 to 1. But if I want a legitimate shot, I'm looking somewhere in the teams, right? The 49ers, 15 to 1. The Browns, 15 to 1 here. The Rams, 15 to 1. I think that makes the most sense. But the team, do you know, that I actually bet preseason to win the Super Bowl was the Buffalo Bills at 12 to 1. I'm expecting big things out of Josh Allen. Even took a price of Josh Allen plus 1,300 to win MVP. So high on the Cleveland Browns, also high on the Buffalo Bills. Oh, I love it. And uh, diehard Bills fan you're talking to here. Don. There you so go, that, man. That goes yeah. Over well. So <laughs> I'll, I'll end it off with this because I know you're an MLB guy and we're mm-hmm. north of the border up here in Toronto. Yep. Um, the, our, our beloved Blue Jays. Woo. Are they gonna Are they gonna make the playoffs? And is there any value? Or is there anything on that board? I haven't had a good look at it for them. Is there anything on the board for them that uh, that kind of tweaked your interest? I'll tell you what's really interesting here because you're right. If you would we would have did this conversation about two weeks ago, I said, hey, just enjoy the rest of the baseball season. Then you know, football season will be here. You don't have to worry about it for the Blue Jays. But they are absolutely scorching hot at this point here. So if we're taking a look and saying you want to go for a deep dive, right, and you want to say 
ride the hot hand throughout September. If the pitching stays the same, Vladdy Jr. ends up, we know, 50 home runs, which is definitely a possibility here over the past three weeks. They're looking at 18 to 1. That's not even to win the World Series. That's just to win the American League. So when you take the hot hand and ride it out, if they do make the playoffs, they can do some damage in there because when you take a look at the Tampa Bay Rays in the same division, very good baseball team. They only play two set pay 270. The Houston Astros plus 200, you know, the Chicago White Sox plus 280 to win the American League. But it's interesting to me because the Yankees always have that Yankees tax. They're sitting about a seven to one price. But if you look deep down and say, hey, if those that lineup continues to bang around with those right handed hitters for the Toronto Blue Jays, why not take a flyer in 18 to one? Because even once you get to the playoffs, if they do make it, you can hedge out and still make a profit at that 18 to one price. Hey, Toronto Blue Jays, red hot. They stay hot. Watch out. Oh, I love it. Donnie, mm-hmm. let her, we'll let you go here now. Let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can find all the amazing content, and uh, let our listeners know. Yep, fantastic. On Twitter, if you want to give me a follow here, at RightSideVP. Always tweeting throughout the day. Love the NFL. Love Major League Baseball, but obviously just a sports fanatic here. Also doing some great things, working with some really good companies at Sports Grid. Both myself and Kevin Walsh host the early line. That's 7 to 9 a.m. Monday through Friday. Then we come back on the air on Sirius Satellite Radio, Channel 204, right on Sports Grid with In Play Sports tonight. Have a great time just going back and forth in that one. And also with SportsBookReview.com during the day, Major League Baseball show, as well as the NFL. NFL show can't wait to do those big shows on the weekend they're a lot of fun to do but content business Stefan has been very good to me and as I like to say I'm just happy to be here oh I love it well Donnie we'll we'll check back uh, midway through the season yep. and uh, I'm sure you'll have some more tips and and some good uh, guidance for us uh, in terms of uh, placing down a few shekels or better too as I like to say and mm-hmm. I appreciate you coming on so good man thanks good luck with the podcast out here and cer- certainly you know anytime you need me just give me a ring Some great advice there from Donnie and um, some great rules and guidelines as to what you're looking at, how the gambling scene's changed, how to possibly get into the gambling scene. And really, uh, we're going to use Donnie throughout the, uh, the season there and really start to dive in on some of these lines. And as we move forward in the weeks to come, He'll be kind of our go-to guy for uh, talking uh, Vegas lines and uh, putting a few bets down on some weekly NFL football and some future NFL football as well. But uh, before we end this episode off, we'd be suffice to say if we didn't figure out what we learned from week one or what we were reminded of and throw you over a few lines and we'll send you on your way here for uh, this week's podcast. What we learned. Uh, I learned three things mostly uh, in week one of NFL football, and I think we're all reminded of the volatility of uh, what can happen in week one and why I reminded reminded you and Donnie reminded you to lay low maybe on week one, week two in terms of betting, in terms of overreaction to your fantasy, to any sort of thing like that you're, you're involved with with week one, and that's just the volatility. But what we did learn, is that Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes are still the best. And they are still the top two dogs in this league to beat. You look at the likes of Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, Lamar Jackson last night on Monday Night Football, all losing. And when you talk about some of these big-name quarterbacks and the next echelon of quarterbacks to challenge Brady and Mahomes, the only one that really took it down was Justin Herbert. And handle this business, you know, rhyming off seven straight first downs in Washington um, to to round out that win and putting a knee on it. That impressed me. Uh, Other than that, you know, uh, Allen sputtered. 
Baker, some would say blew it. Uh, Lamar blew it. Trevor Lawrence and the rookies kind of had, you know, Mac Jones was solid, but they all kind of had their struggles and was to be expected with their first real taste of NFL football. So that's the first thing I learned. The second thing I learned, and it's the big thing, and it's back, and it'll be interesting to track here uh, moving forward throughout these weeks, is the crowd matters and the people in the stands matter. And here's how it matters, folks. 2020, on average, um, we had... And this was in week one, okay, uh, or sorry, throughout the 2020 season, we had 365 offensive holding penalties, 497 false starts for a total of 862 of those two penalties, okay? And to me, those are directly related to crowd noise and getting off the ball and and or jumping a little bit early, all those types of things in terms of snap and being able to hear the cadence and the counts on that line of scrimmage. That averaged out to about 51 per week. Going into last night, and I know there was a few more, so you can add a few more to this total because uh, I'd done my research uh, before last night's game. 38 false starts penalties, 38 offensive holding penalties for a total of 76 already that's one and a half times and you add on another four or five last night so you're already at one and a half times those those two on pace for well over 1300 that's gonna and i know there's an extra week in there but remember folks we're only averaging 51 of those per week so if you add 51 under that 862 you're a little over 900 so we're on pace right now for over 1300 um total penalties false starts and offensive holding directly related to crowd noise and we've seen that across the board from buffalo to uh cleveland and and and, uh, kansas in kansas city and some of these places that these crowds like to get nice and loud and it directly equates to the scoreboard and when you look at it the lines were set a lot of 48s 47s 51s 50s 10 out of the 16 come in at under that's 66 percent almost there um, so it's it, that's significant in terms of Vegas and what you're seeing there. Anything at, at that 56 and above rate, uh, that's a significant advantage. And we'll see if these um, lines change over two or three weeks here, if they're going to stay fast um, with these lines. And the last thing I learned, um, some of these teams got to find their identity and find it real fast, and that's the Tennessee Titans. We've talked about that with Julio Jones. Only, uh, you know, you're going to make that... Uh, that trade for Julio and you target him six times. This is that thing I was talking about. Where is their identity? Who's going to get the ball? When are they going to get it? The Buffalo Bills. Are we going to continue to throw it 51 times and drop back 60 plus times? You know, there was really only two or three, um, there may be three or four design play calls for, for Josh Allen to run. The rest was some scrambling, ducking out, getting that. So to me, they lined up and, and went to pass the ball 60 times. Minnesota Vikings, 49 times for Kirk Cousins, uh, dropping back to throw that ball. Green Bay, you know, what's your identity? You got the two-headed monster and Jones and Dylan. Are you going to continue to run the ball, or is this going to be the Aaron Rodgers show, and is he going to try to take over um, and, and change this thing on his watch? So a few teams that you've got to continue to look out for. Baltimore you can throw in there as well. What's your identity? Are you going to try to figure out how to continue to run the ball, or are you going to you know, let this be in the hands of Lamar Jackson 
and um, that passing game that's got a few more weapons this year. So real interesting to see. In terms of uh, lines, I'm going to send you off with a few here. Uh, Donnie got you a few. We're not going to be able to hit them all this week because of our two great guests and uh, our amazing interview with Paul. But um, I like the Washington uh, football team to rebound against the at home Thursday night against the uh, the New York Giants minus three and a half. I like Miami. I said this uh, in the interview with Donnie plus one forty at home. I see Buffalo starting this season out. Um, you guys know. Listeners, you know I'm a diehard Bills fan, but I think it's going to be good for the Bills long term to get punched in the mouth a couple times early here and then be able to rebound with a little bit of a lighter schedule moving forward and at the end of the season. But I like Miami to to send the Buffalo Bills back to Orchard Park 0-2 plus 140 at home. I also like the under at 48. I think if Miami wins this game, they mud it up a little bit and uh, keep that high-powered Bills offense um, under 20 or around 20. Miami's right over 20 or just around 20 to uh, keep the under and good value at plus 140. I think the Bengals are worth a look against the Bears, folks. Um, I don't think we see Justin Fields quite yet. I think uh, Joe Burrow has found his formula. Really impressed me against the Minnesota Vikings. Great value at plus 130 there. Also, I don't mind him at plus 3 on the uh, on the spread as well. Love New England against the Jets. I know it's on the road, minus five and a half, but I see them winning by a touchdown. Uh, Makai Becton gets hurt. The injuries are starting to pile up against the Jets. We know that this isn't a deep squad. They have added some pieces, but um, that blind side will be open for Zach Wilson. New England's got a good front four, or sorry, front seven. They're going to be able to get home against this kid, and Bill Belichick just flat out doesn't lose against rookie quarterbacks, even though he's got one of his own. And I see them winning by six or more and covering that five and a half. Um, I do like the Chargers at home against the Cowboys. Minus three, 55 is the is the, um, is the uh, point total on this one. I'm going to go with the, the week one early trend here. I'm going to hammer the under as well. And uh, I think Minnesota starts 0-2, minus 4. I think Kyler Murray gets off to a hot start. Game totals 51. I like the Cardinals, minus 4. Um, at worst, I see them winning this game 27-23, 28-24. Um, Both good offenses. I think they'll see some scoring, so I'm not uh, uh, convinced on the under. But uh, those are six games that I like as, uh, as well as the games that Donnie provided. Folks, what a great episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed the, the guests. Hope you enjoyed a little break from uh, from my voice. We're going to catch you next week with our Ryder Cup preview. Make sure you're following along with our picks each week on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, we'll catch you next week. And enjoy week two of NFL football. Thank you.